It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So it's hard to imagine that I somehow made it to episode 36 in this series, but you know, alas, uh, I have, we have today's message and two more uh, in the, the series. So this is our final week in this series, which means I need to land it uh, this week. And remember, it was from 1914 to 1974, and I just sort of barely crested into the 70s in my last message, but I sort of skipped through the 60s in a way that is probably unfair to the 60s because it's such a definitive time in our history. And even some of the things I skipped, you could cry foul. I mean, technically the assassination of John F. Kennedy, arguably maybe even the biggest event in that entire time period, and I sort of skimmed over it. I mean, I I mentioned it, right? Does that count? Uh, The assassination of Martin Luther King, a massive event uh, in this time. The assassination of Bobby Kennedy. I mean, this is like, what a a 10-year period. Uh, And it was a very loud and noisy period. Uh, That's a good way of describing the 60s. And the 70s, maybe it was because I was born in 1970, I'm not sure if I brought a calm uh, to it, but it's even though we still had the Vietnam War going and we were going to have a lot of uh, nonsense in the 70s as well, I don't know, do you think it was the fact that I was born in 1970 that maybe uh, created more of a stabilizing uh, presence? I'd like to think that my life has done something, right? Uh, But... Uh, The 1970s, they just feel very different uh, than the 60s. It's weird how a decade can have a feeling to it. Remember when we were talking about the 1930s, it's called the dirty 30s. And who wants to live in the dirty 30s? It just sounds like a terrible thing. But we had this dust bowl because of the agricultural uh, issues of the time. They actually had notions that were incorrect. And so they had all these people that had gone out and gotten territory in the Midwest that was just brushland. And they were told, scientifically told, that if they till the soil, that will, you know, the the rain will follow. So the rain will follow the plow was the notion. And I'm not exactly sure scientifically where they got that from. It's like, oh, rain clouds somehow sense when, when soil is tilled. And it didn't work. And so now we have all this tilled soil in the Midwest and we're going to have a drought and we're going to have extreme winds and it's going to create a decade of dust. Isn't that weird just to think of a decade of dust? And so the 60s have their own decade of dust and we have a instability that has been created in our country that to say that we fully recovered from it, I'm not exactly sure if I can. Uh, a lot of the, the world in which we live and the... Uh, the perspective that Americans now have on their government. For instance, John F. Kennedy's assassination. At the time that it happened, almost all of America, probably 90 percentile, felt like we had the guy, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, and uh, it was one guy, one shooter. Now, I think it was like 61% of the country actually believes it's a conspiracy of the government. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a pretty big percentage, right? Which shows you a climate change in our country. Because before that, our government was just healthy and whole, good constitutional republic. And now there's a question mark around it. And you'll see that a lot in the politics of today, that we don't have a tremendous confidence that our government is telling us the truth. If you've ever heard the term fake news, 
that is a phrase that actually enunciates something for a lot of people. We don't buy it. And that creates a certain instability. So we are at uh, the be very beginnings of, I've, I've clicked this twice and it didn't, oh, there it is. Oh, now it went forward twice. Part 36, this is called the unwanted life. So to be able to effectively teach this particular episode, I need to go back in time to an event that you thought I skipped. Uh, shortly after noon on November 22nd, 1963, the president of the United States was shot. Uh, this event, and I, I told you even when I skipped it last time, I said there's a reason why I'm skipping this event, and I am not sure if it's a spiritual thing or if it's just psychologically tantalizing. There was something about this event that is so utterly intriguing to the human mind, and the fact that it is unanswered and it has unanswered questions to it is, is like a certain drug uh, to the brain. And so I'm not going into it, even though I know some of you are like, <gasps> are we actually going to cover that? No, 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 no. I'm not going to try and dip my toe into that dangerous water. But what's going to come out of it is a character, a character named Lee Harvey Oswald. He is going to be considered the lone gunman. The Warren Commission is going to do an, a, a deep dive study on this, which many people think was bogus to start with, right? And they're going to determine that he was the lone gunman. And so I have to use the term purported. You know how you, you don't always like to have to do that, but in this case, I have no choice. He's the purported killer of John F. Kennedy. And the moment that this is going to happen, it's not that everyone in our country loved our president, but we do love the peace of our country and we love the fact that uh, we have a sound governmental system and we don't have wars on our shores. And so when this happens, this is destabilizing to our country and anyone who would bring such destabilization is not a popular character. So immediately a dark cloud is going to hover over this character named Lee Harvey Oswald. So here's a picture when he is uh, in custody and he's going to be arrested. They're going to find him in a theater. He's going to actually shoot a policeman, which doesn't help his case of innocence because why is he carrying a gun in a theater to start with and why is he shooting a policeman if he's innocent, right? And so, of course, that's going to be the mounting evidence against him. And uh, here's what I'm going to describe it. In the hearts and minds of Americans, there's an instant callous that is going to form where we are going to desire this man to pay the highest penalty. We want him dead. I mean, do you understand? Just as in, a, in an American psyche, we desire this man to be eliminated because he has done the worst of deeds in our country and he has killed, even if we didn't vote for him, our very president. And how dare he? So it's the instant callous that grew over the hearts and minds of the American public. So the reason I'm setting you up with that, even though I'm probably falsely baiting you and thinking I'm going to teach the assassination of John F. Kennedy, I'm not, but I'm bringing up a character and how a mindset of a culture can look at a character, a character like Lee Harvey Oswald, which we don't actually know that much about him. He's somewhat of a mysterious character, which is part of the lore of the assassination. But during this little stretch of 1914 and 1974, in 1914, I said that America is arguably the most racist or racially segregated country 
on earth. Most of us would not interpret America that way. We have a lot more of a generous lens towards our history than our history actually may boast. We, we have had a lot of issues with the treatment of certain people groups. And so over this 60 year period, we're gonna see a fight and a wrestling match to see those people, in a sense, gain a voice. And that's typically called the civil rights era. And most of us, if we were to just look at it plainly as believers, we would say it's good that every race in our country would have equal citizenship. I mean, it's, it's sort of hard to argue that you know, because of the color of your skin, you shouldn't, right? There's something deeply off with that. And that's because culturally we've separated from some of our past oddities that are deeply ingrained. Sometimes you can't see the social things that get baked into your perspective and they can become blind spots. And I would say America has had very significant blind spots to the point where we, in going through this series, and I don't know if all of you in this room have gone through the entire series, but there are some horrifying moments that we have no words to describe other than that is wrong. And Lord Jesus, save us from whatever consequence comes from that. We need your mercy. I love my country, but that does not mean I don't believe our country needs intervention and that we don't need healing and that we don't need to walk through certain things unto a place of greater health. So this period of 1914 to 1974, I'm going to call it the battle over the dignity, the honor, and the value of a human life. When you go through this series and you see how this lynching in the South system worked, that basically up till around this time, early 1970s, no lynching had ever been prosecuted. So you could lynch a black person and you could get away scot-free. And up to this point in history, no one had ever been incriminated for it. And so it's become a, I mean, you just imagine how the, the South is dealing with this. This is not a healthy situation. Every, the Civil War and before the Civil War, we have issues in our country, and these are still prevalent not that long ago. And so we're going to see a fight to see that shift to the point where today we think it would be totally odd and strange and weird to have such behavior in our country, especially go without incrimination. You follow me on that? In other words, it's like no one's going to get away with that. You don't harm a black person today and get away with it. You don't harm someone that is from the LGBTQ plus community and get away with it, right? I mean, there's certain things that we are fairly familiar with today that you don't want to mess with because our society will rise up in their defense now. So let's just look at some of the, uh, the overview of what we've gone through. The horrors of Jim Crow. So Jim Crow is a system. It's a, it's a system of what's called the black codes. And this is, in a sense, how a black person is supposed to relate in the culture to all the white people. And it has led to some great horrors. The dehumanizing of COINTELPRO, which was in my last message, which if you were on the opposite side of the political spectrum in the 60s, then you were a target group. Then you were someone who needed to be taken out and neutralized. And to see our government function that way is, is disturbing to us. The dismissal of women, the denigration of blacks, the growth of a government that will stand for the oppressed. So what we're seeing is that our government 
who in a strange sense has always been for the oppressed, right? On paper, but not practically. And so even when we're passing laws in and through this period of time, the government isn't enforcing them. And if you remember the message called the Freedom Riders, where the Freedom Riders are going to say, okay, we have all these uh, Supreme Court, uh, court cases that are going to say that we can behave in the South the way that we've always behaved in the North, so we're going to prove it. We're going to prove that we can go into, if you're a black person, go into a white bathroom. And if you're a white person, go into a black bathroom. That this isn't going to be a violation anymore, right? We have uh, federal protection. And so they go down on this freedom ride through Alabama and Mississippi, and it doesn't go so well, right? Because the government stands off and they don't do anything. And it's quite the disaster. But we're going to see that begin to change. And we're going to see actually the government say, all right. We're going to stand behind these things. And this is just the morphine of our culture in this time. I'm actually setting you up for something, by the way. Lee Harvey Oswald, a man who doesn't deserve to live. So do you remember my title of this one? It was called The Unwanted Life. Yeah, we're going to call that a Lee Harvey Oswald. A Lee Harvey Oswald is one that is not wanted. It is one that is getting in the way. It is one that is a weight on our society. So we'll call it a Lee Harvey Oswald is an unwanted life, an inconvenient life, a distasteful life. I think it's pretty easy for us to get into the skin of 1963 America and understand why we might be a little upset with this guy and why we would want the firmest punishment uh, and swiftly. So I'm going to introduce you to another character that is in agreement with that thought, and his name is Jack Ruby. Now there's a lot of any, anything, any name you bring up in here, there's conspiracies all over the place. My dad used to tell me conspiracies about Jack Ruby. I'm not going to tell you conspiracies about Jack Ruby. I'm just going to tell you what Jack Ruby says. Jack Ruby says that he was so distraught that his president was shot that he is going to go out and he's going to take justice into his own hands. And so this man is doing America a service. Because remember, everyone wants Lee Harvey Oswald dead, Right? So what's Jack Ruby going to do? Jack Ruby, on television, is actually going to shoot Lee Harvey Oswald. This actually happened on television, guys. Uh, that is the first televised murder uh, of all time. I don't know how many since have existed. I mean, it's a very rare situation. I'm not sure what happened to my keynote, uh, but it was up there on the screen and suddenly disappeared. So Jack Ruby is doing us all a favor, right? Do you guys understand what I mean by that? In other words, if our culture is saying, we don't want this man, then what this man just did is actually a favor, right? Of course, if you get into the conspiracy side of it, everyone's gonna be saying, yeah, but we never got a clear confession from Lee Harvey Oswald. Are we sure we're not covering something up here? Of course, that's like a deep rabbit hole dive right there. But the trial of Jack Ruby, Okay, we just saw it on television, guys. What did the guy do? He just murdered Lee Harvey Oswald. In this country, that is illegal. However, you could press the issue and say, but it's Lee Harvey Oswald. And it's pretty obvious that he is the killer of our president, which means maybe we should go leniently on Jack Ruby because Jack Ruby is only doing what all of us wanted to do. And so March 14th, 1964, we're going to call it an open and shut case. I mean, technically, legally speaking, Jack Ruby has no hope here. I mean, how many witnesses? I mean, everything about the situation is just clear. 
So there's Jack Ruby, his mugshot. The trial, convicting a man for taking an unwanted life. By the way, I don't know if you guys know I'm setting you up for something. This is something that, for all practical purposes, is a strange case because the American public, though they are horrified and shocked that Jack Ruby did this, there's also something satisfying, the fact that this terrible character was dealt with, and he was dealt with swiftly. The justice system in America can take forever, and sometimes they can even give leniency in a situation that doesn't deserve it at all. And Jack Ruby is going to come in and be, in a strange sense, an American hero in sort of a perverted way. But he's convicted, so the trial is going to convict a man for taking an unwanted life. So introducing the Dallas County District Attorney, his name is Henry Wade. So there's a picture of Henry Wade. And Henry Wade is a character in our story. He's a very powerful man in Dallas. And so he is going to be the guy who is going to convict Jack Ruby, and he's going to do a good job uh, at it. So here's the big press conference immediately after the assassination. And Henry Wade is at the center. You'll see him on the far left. I should have put a little circle around him, but I think you guys can pick him out there. Henry Wade knew how to get his man. He had purportedly never lost a case. So I wouldn't want to be against this guy uh, at all. And uh, of course, even legend has it now that he had convicted and imprisoned upwards of at least 15 people that were actually innocent uh, too. He, he just always got his man. Uh, if you stood against Henry Wade, it didn't matter if you were guilty or innocent, you were going to prison. I mean, this guy is, is tough and he just wins. I don't know if there's some underhanded uh, payments going on. I don't know what it is, but the guy just won and he won and he won and he won. And he won this one too. Jack Ruby gets the electric chair. Now, he, after he gets the electric chair, that's going to turn into a life sentence and he's going to die uh, before that even starts. And so Jack Ruby is actually going to die of cancer before he actually serves his sentence. But Jack Ruby gets the electric chair. Why? For eliminating a life that everyone wanted eliminated. Isn't that a, just an interesting thought, especially with what is about to happen in history? The story of another unwanted life, Dallas, Texas, same town, same city, 1973. Introducing Norma McCorvey, a young waitress in Dallas. Norma has a problem. Her life is very unsteady, unstable, and she's, had her, she's on her third unwanted pregnancy, and she does not want to keep the third child, but abortion is illegal in Texas, and she wants to eliminate a life. There's Norma McCorvey. So Norma has a Lee Harvey Oswald in her life that she wishes to get rid of. Norma deems the Texas law that hinders her from eliminating this unwanted life unfair. Two Texas lawyers have been looking for someone like Norma to help them change Texas law regarding unwanteds. They file a suit against Dallas County and go head-to-head with Henry Wade to legally excuse Norma if she chose to wipe out the Lee Harvey Oswald in her life. The famous case, a young waitress from Dallas takes on the mighty Henry Wade. Does she actually think she's going to get away with this? I mean, she's taking on Henry Wade. And Henry Wade is the same one that incriminated Jack Ruby for taking an unwanted life. And here's Norma McCorvey's uh, quote. Listen to this. This is amazing. I didn't attend any of the court proceedings. 
She's just a young girl, doesn't know anything about this. These two lawyers pick up her case and like, this is exactly what we've been looking for. She doesn't attend any of the court proceedings. The famous case, McCorvey actually wins against Henry Wade, January 22nd, 1973, and it allowed for Lee Harvey Oswald's to be eliminated without criminal charges. This actually happened in our country in 1973 that if there's an unwanted life of a very specific nature, you can eliminate it. And it's no longer a crime. What? So LHOs, Lee Harvey Oswalds, that's one of the ways we could describe them today. Life hampering obstacles, that's another way. Life harassing oppressions, or there's some other ways that we could say it. Little hidden ones, or little happy odorables. Norman McCorvey says, I was the Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade. So that's Norman McCorvey. And she took on Henry Wade. Well, it wasn't really her that took it on. The system took it on. But this is showing you a trajectory in our culture. It's an outflow of the 60s where there's a rejection of a Judeo-Christian system. Now, what's interesting is two things seem to be happening at once, is we're awakening as a country to the value of certain people. Isn't that just iron, ironic? We've been fighting and we've seen in this series this denigration of certain people groups. And then we're finally awake, we're finally alert, and what do we do? We get blind to another people group. It's just the great irony in our history. 1914 and 1974, the battle over the dignity, the honor, and the value of a human life. And where are we at? 1973. Right at the end of this period where we've been fighting to see something as a country. And then it's almost like we go immediately back into the dark ages. We have a blind spot in our country that exists right now. And in the future, I'm guessing we're going to have the same sort of idiotic stupor on our face where we're looking at it going, uh, did we actually do that? Yes, is the answer. The same way we have denigrated certain people groups throughout our history and for whatever reason been blind to it, we have a similar blindness today. The same way we can look at the horrors of Jim Crow and say, what were we thinking? The dehumanizing of COINTELPRO, the dismissal of women, the denigration of blacks. You see, we're supposed to have this growth of a government that will stand for the oppressed. That's actually what we were moving towards, right? So the redemption of Jane Roe. In all of these things, as we look at this extraordinary time period in our history, which I still have, Leslie has a message on Wednesday, and I think from what, I, what I'm gathering, she's going to do uh, Keith Green, Leonard Ravenhill, so it's right in this same time period, and then I'm going to finish on Friday with, I'm not sure how to finally put the final punctuation on this series, but I know it has to have something to do with Watergate, because I've always said World War I to Watergate, so somehow I have to land there, right? So we have some good Nixon stories coming up, I'm guessing. But what we have is we have the legalization of abortion. And many of us know that something has changed, you know, in the Supreme Court ruling even this last year, that we have movements that have semi-countered this in our culture, but not culturally or socially. I would say it would be similar to like uh, the desegregation in Brown versus the Board of Education in 1955, where most of the nation doesn't recognize it. <laughs> they just sort of look at the Supreme Court as you've got to be kidding. 
and we're not doing that. And so we have a blind spot in our country, in a country, ironically, that you could say, look at how far we have come in seeing the value of a human life. Isn't that interesting? And yet we are in the dark ages in regards to the value of an unborn life, a hidden one. Just because you can't see it does not make it less valuable. And oftentimes, uh, we could say those are the most precious. In fact, when God describes the body of Christ, it's those that are less visible that actually deserve more dignity and more honor. Uh, those, as we always say, the big toe in the body of Christ, whoever's providing that balance uh, for the body, is usually covered in a sock and a shoe. And yet you show great honor for those that are hidden in their roles. And a little life, just because you can't see it, does not denigrate its value. It is precious in God's eyes. And it must become precious in ours. The redemption of Jane Roe. How could anything redemptive come out of this? Norma McCorvey is going to encounter Jesus Christ. Isn't that just... I mean, it's not something you're going to hear much about, but she did in the 90s. And there's her baptism. Isn't that uh, a remarkable thought? Just to think, first of all, it's hard not to say she was used. You know that her daughter that she wanted to abort is actually going to be born because the law isn't going to pass until after she is delivered. Which, then she gave it up for adoption, and there's going to be an estrangement between her and this daughter for pretty obvious reasons. Could you imagine being the baby? that was rejected by your mom to the point where your mom went to the Supreme Court to see if she could kill you. And, but that life, still alive today. I mean, it's rather a profound statement. I don't have a great redemptive story about that life yet, but maybe it's a life we should pray for. Uh, it's a fascinating statement. Norma McCorvey has since passed on, but here's some quotes. Norma McCorvey said, I am dedicated to spending the rest of my life undoing the law that bears my name. She said, it's not your body, it's not your choice because you got that from God. He gave that to you. Isn't that interesting that uh, Jane Roe from Roe v. Wade, that's actually her story. Lee Harvey Oswald, what value does this man have? You see, how we respond to a Lee Harvey Oswald is actually very, very important for us in our souls. I get it, what he did, was horrible. What he did was monumental. And yet, what he did was, could have been selfish. It could have been marked by hate. I mean, there's all sorts of motives you could have with it. All things that we could probably identify with. And you understand the significance of how you respond to someone else is important because you respond out of the way you know God responds to you. And if God is rejecting you for these things, then maybe rejection of others for doing the same thing is a totally reasonable thing. But if God is showing mercy to you, if God is showing long-suffering with you, patience with you, if he is forgiving you, then what do we as believers offer instead of just anger, hate, venom, and vengeance? We offer what Christ offers. It does not mean that Christ is smiling on sin. He hates sin more than any of us in this room. And yet he is a God who desires first to give mercy. If 
There is humility in repentance. His mercy is ready to kindle. If there isn't, if there is pride, arrogance, and rebellion, his mercy can't kindle, but that doesn't mean he's still not ready to give it. And so in this situation, it's an interesting test for our soul because someone like Lee Harvey Oswald, which most people would just say is just the, uh, it's the garbage of our culture, right? It's like, it doesn't deserve our culture. I mean, our, our, our society is so much higher than Lee Harvey Oswald. Get him out, remove him. You see, when you have that notion, you know, that's, that's the same notion Hitler had, by the way, guys. Hitler wanted a pure culture, so he wanted to remove the garbage from it. So then the question is, who defines what's garbage? Because the moment you allow a man to define what is garbage and what is valuable, you end up with the Nazi regime, where the white-skinned Aryan race is the premier version of humanity, and the Slavs and the Jews, these are a lower form and they should be eliminated. Hitler was eliminating those with disabilities. He was eliminating the deaf, the blind, the lame, because they were a liability on the culture. What I'm describing is always very near to a culture like ours, where we are smart, we are well-educated, but our value system isn't defined by heaven, it's defined by man's prerogative and what leads to comfort for our own life. So if you are looking at life through the lens of your satisfaction, your comfort, what makes it easy for you, what maintains the peace for you, then there are very specific ones that are very valuable in the kingdom of heaven that could be eliminated and you may not realize what you are accidentally endorsing. Lee Harvey Oswald, what value does this man have? It'd be interesting because none of us have the opportunity to go back in time to actually be present right at this moment and to be able to freshly assess it with this sermon in front of us, right? Where we're like thinking, okay, what is his value? Most of us are just moved by emotion. I mean, this was a very traumatic thing for anyone that was alive at this time. And it's very hard to see clearly. You're just so distraught. I mean, people were just crying for days. It was such a disturbing thing. This was a public issue. I mean, you had a, a president being publicly assassinated. People watched it, right? You're going to have Jack Ruby kill Lee Harvey Oswald publicly. People are going to see this on television. It's going to scar them. It, 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 everyone that was alive in this time can mark where they were at these exact moments. And so it's easy to be swayed by emotion in regards to a man like Lee Harvey Oswald. And yet, how does God see him? So I have taught this at various points throughout Ellerslie history, and that's it's a, something I call, I, I've named it, and that's the doctrine of exquisite preciousness. And it's hard for us at first to think of applying that to someone like Lee Harvey Oswald, that he would be exquisitely precious to Jesus Christ. It's like, pfft, well... <laughs> that's a, a bit of a stretch, Eric. How about applying it to you? You see, the same way we struggle in applying it to someone like Lee Harvey Oswald, we sometimes struggle having that same doctrine applied to us. How valuable are you? 
So 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So that last word is God's. G-O-D apostrophe S, which means possessive. You belong to God. You were purchased at a price. What did God pay for your body? He paid with his life. Well, right there you can see value because you can see the value of something by what someone is willing to pay to get it. You know, it's classic statement in, in real estate. It's like, how much is that house worth? Well, whatever someone's willing to pay for it. And that's its value. And so what was God willing to pay for you? And that's the doctrine of exquisite preciousness right there because we know what the answer is. We just have a tough time computing. So the doctrine of exquisite preciousness, here's sort of an overview of it. That which is unlovely is loved. That which is unholy is pursued. That which is unrighteous is suffered for. That which is unworthy is died for. That which is weak is rescued. That which the world considers nothing is exquisitely precious. Imagine if you thought this way, how it would change your life. It's interesting how obvious what I just said is in light of the gospel, in light of the word of God, but how vaporous and vague it seems in our own souls. There's so many of us that know that God loves the person next to us, and we can even share that with them. I just want you to know that God loves you. You're convinced of it, but if someone ever came to you and said, did you know that God loves you? It would like cause convulsions inside of you if you actually started to, to grip it because you so need to know that. You need to know that you are a target of his love, not just the person next to you. And you've spent so much time just sort of pushing it away and shoving that away. It's like, no, 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 I'm not worthy. No, 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 I'm not. And it sounds sort of noble, almost humble inside of you. But when Jesus Christ pays with his very shed blood for you, he is establishing value, exquisite preciousness of your individual life. So I did a study on the most expensive real estate property in the world. And look at what I, I came up with, guys. This is just the sampling of the most expensive. Monaco is the most expensive in the world at $62,500 per square foot. <laughs> Could you imagine buying a foot of territory in Monaco for $62,000? I have a foot of uh, property. Uh, I think that's, you know, ocean side or, or Mediterranean side. Hong Kong, $50,000 per square foot. London, $4,000 square, per, per square foot. Okay, that's very expensive property, but that's not the most expensive property in the world. That's just what I could find on like one of those real estate websites, right? Because the most expensive property in the world doesn't show up on the web because it's not for sale. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the most expensive real estate property in the world is actually you. Per square foot, I don't know how to put a value to it, but we're talking multiple trillions. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you could try and I, I think that's even falling short. It's inestimable. It's impossible to calculate. 
That's how valuable you are. Every square foot of your life is so much more valuable than any oceanside, oceanfront property in Monaco. You, worth the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You, worth his almighty life given up. You, worth God coming to earth to save. You, worth God himself suffering and dying. You, of inestimable, unfathomable worth. So, how do we live as Christians? When we recognize the doctrine of exquisite preciousness, how does it change our behavior? Not just in receiving the love of Jesus personally, but how about in giving it? Because we actually look around and we treat others as more expensive real estate property than we are. We're we're expensive real estate property, but guess what? They're even more expensive. That's actually the way we're supposed to look at things. That everyone around us is actually more valuable and important than us. That is our position. Why can we do that? Because we know we're already valuable. We know that we are satisfied in Christ. We can actually turn outward. We are We are loved. We know we're loved. And so now we can give that love freely and treat everyone around us as more important than ourselves. So the most expensive real estate property in the world, if I asked you, you know what you could also answer? It's them. You say, well, wait a minute, who's who's them? Well, just point in some direction. We'll find a them. Them. They're, They're the most important real estate property in the world. That's when you are walking through this life. As you look around, you see this extreme value, and you see it through the lens of what Jesus sees. It transforms the way you interact because when you're talking with someone, it doesn't matter if they're poorly mannered, if they curse every other word, if, you know, they have a stench about them, you know, foul breath. It doesn't make any difference. That's precious property. Have you ever looked at a fixer-upper? A fixer-upper right on the beach, you know, something like that. It's like, well, that could really be some great property. (laughs) That's like that person I just described. Yeah, the property's still valuable, even though it's a little run down and it's never been tended to and has a lot of weeds around it. God's very interested in that property. Them, the most expensive real estate property in the world. Them, worth the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Them, worth his almighty life given up. Them, Worth God coming to earth to save them. Worth God himself suffering and dying. Them of inestimable, unfathomable worth. So the kingdom of progression, if you go back into this series, I think it is uh, something about uh, the uh, the Lux Blanket. I can't remember the name of the, it's like the third message in the series. And I think this is from that, but the kingdom, it should be progression. I don't know that procession is what I was looking for, but progression, I think, is the right word. So it starts with a very self-centered perspective where we are thinking we're better than everyone around us, right? The world centers around us. This is like how we pop out of our mother's womb. And we scream for our milk and we cry for the things we want. You know, hey, I'm the center of the universe. And if you have a good parent, your parent begins to train you that you're not the center of the universe. But then we eventually start to land in a healthier territory known as we are equal, right? All right, so I'm not better, but I'm also not lesser, right? Hey, we're equal. But the kingdom of heaven is going to bring us into a place when the spirit of God begins to tutor our soul. And it's not a denigration of our value. It's having him pour out his love inside of us so that we can look through his lens, which is a lens that says they are royalty and it is my great privilege to serve them. 
You see, with that lens, you now have the healthy expression of the kingdom of heaven, where you treat everyone around you as if they are more important. So what about LHOs, Lee Harvey Oswalds? What about those that deserve what they get? Those that have inflicted pain on others, those that have snubbed their nose at God, those that should get the electric chair. What about those? Everything about the kingdom of heaven seems to have a magnetic pull to that very question because technically that's you and me. Now you may not see your crimes in that light, but God wants you to realize your crimes are actually in that light. So how you respond, you should pause. Because when you bring swift judgment on an LHO around you, you need to recognize that you are not giving what God has given you. He has forgiven you of such great crimes, and yet you are going to hold others accountable for theirs. What he says to you is forgive. Remember that mercy I gave to you? Show it. Remember how I visited you in your prison? Visit them. You know how I gave you hope and courage and a future in your darkest hour? You give it to them. See, technically, it would be the greatest privilege for God to give one of us the assignment to go in and talk with Lee Harvey Oswald about his soul. That would be the privilege of privileges. Even though the rest of the world is alienating him and they look at him as the scum of the earth, that you don't. You and I have been gifted with something that the world doesn't have, and that is the eyesight of heaven. We understand the doctrine of exquisite preciousness. Job 29, 12 through 17. So for those of you that have asked about why we have everything named 29 around here, well, it's for this, this reason. In fact, this message is right at the center of everything I care about. This, the first sermon on this stage, did you know that it wasn't me? It was actually Hudson, and he got up here. Uh, is, uh, I don't know if Annie is here, but uh, Annie was in the audience. And uh, she, Hudson came up, and he was pacing back and forth like I do. You know, he'd seen, seen me do that, and he was preparing his sermon. And this is before we ever had a, a, a message in here. And he said, did you know that God wants us to rescue the orphan? That was the first sermon at Ellerslie. Did you know that God wants us to rescue, get this, the unwanted? That's, that's the equivalent of it, guys. The first sermon ever given here. That's what this environment is. What are you being trained for? You're not being trained to go after the wanted. You're trained to go after the unwanted. You are being trained to have God's eyes to see a lost and dying world. There are so many people out there that don't realize that God values them. There are people right now hanging in the balance and they're thinking of taking their life because they don't recognize the extraordinary, exquisite preciousness of their life and that God has mercy for them right now. And you are the carrier of that revelation. Do you not know that God wants us to rescue the unwanted? So here's Job 29, 12 through 17. I delivered the poor who cried out 
the fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor and I sought out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. That, right there. There's a whole bunch of unwanteds in that storyline right there in Job chapter 29. And look at how Job is going to respond to them. He's going to give up his life. He is going to spend his wealth. He is going to spend his strength on behalf of them. So what do we do with the Lee Harvey Oswalds in our life? We are willing to lay down our life so that they can live. Whoa, 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 whoa. This, is, this guy's a murderer over here. And we're willing, if at all possible, to see him rescued. We're willing to do whatever is needed. Lord, I see the value of that life. Use me in whatever way you need to, to communicate to him that he is loved and that he is precious. The kingdom truth. Okay, guys, if you can process this, it will change your life. We don't receive what we deserve. Instead, we receive what he deserves. We don't receive what we deserve. We receive what he deserves. What does he deserve? Uh, to be exalted to the highest place? Excuse me, but God, I, I'm really not fit for that. We don't receive what we deserve. We receive what he deserves. Gospel 101, right there. And that's also what we share. We don't share with the convicted criminal that we're just happy to see them getting what they deserve. Justice is needed in a healthy culture, guys. So I'm not trying to say, hey, let's skew justice. Let's, let's skip it. A judge and a jury have their role in a, in a healthy culture. But as a Christian, I'm not judge and jury. I'm the one that gets to go out and love and to give mercy. And though I praise God for a good justice system, and I wish we really had a good justice system here in America, but I praise God for it. But I also want to be the one that is giving mercy because it's not my job to condemn. It's not my job to judge. It's my job to minister grace, to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ, to seek the unwanteds and to be willing to lay down my life for them. Father, may the first sermon preached here be the ongoing sermon preached here. Lord, may we recognize that the reason we are receiving this strength is so that we can spend it on the weaker. Lord, you have built us up. You have rescued us from tremendous weakness. You have given us supernatural strength. Why? What are we supposed to do with it? We're supposed to give it to the weak. Lord Jesus, give us eyes to see what you see. Give us ears to hear what you hear. Give us a heart to beat with your burdens. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your kingdom. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. 
and our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.